0: Hey everyone, I'm Brendan Hill, and this is Forward Thinking, a podcast by MediG. Each week, I talk to inspirational business owners, brands, and marketing experts to learn from their experiences on the front line and uncover what it takes to build a world-class business. And this week, my very special guest is Anna Cheng is currently head of growth at AI startup Curious Thing. She was previously employee number three at Spaceship, where she developed a pre-launch viral waitlist of 40,000 people, and then achieved $100 million in funds under management all in the first four months. I've known Anna for a while now, and she's definitely one of the most generous people in the marketing community, always giving back and teaching about her growth marketing through her experiences, and today is no different. We cover a wide range of marketing topics, including activation, onboarding, and pirate metrics. Anna also deconstructs exactly how she built that viral waitlist that resulted in 40,000 contacts. So please enjoy this special growth marketing episode with Anna Cheng. Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I know that you're still fairly early on in your marketing career but you've worked at some amazing companies but winding back the clock what was your first exposure to marketing?
1: I sort of got into marketing by accident. I started off my career actually in accounting. Right. My mum was a CFO and I thought I really wanted to be like her when I grew up so Mm -hmm. straight out of high school went straight into a boutique accounting firm. I spent two years there and I think you know, at first it was really interesting, as with most things, for the first six months when you're just starting new and you don't know anything and mm. there's a massive learning curve. But then after that, I got really bored of it. So I sort of went zero to 100, ended up starting my own company with a bunch of friends. Wow. So when I was 19 years old, I started a company called Foodie, which connected home chefs with consumers. Okay. And back then, I didn't really know what marketing was or what particular frameworks there were to growth. And so, you know, I used to do all this really ad hoc sort of marketing strategies like just to test out whether people would pay a certain, you know, price for homemade spaghetti, um, whether people would pay for pickup, whether people would pick up from a central location or pay for delivery, things like that. And so I'd spend nights in the uni kitchen cooking up like 60 portions of spaghetti just to test these particular hypotheses. But I didn't realise there was a proper way to, you know, test and learn from experiments like this. Um, I eventually, like, left that business Mm. just because it felt like more like a business venture rather than something I was passionate about. Mm. Uh, So then I moved on to this B2B mental health startup called Uprise. Right. So that went through the Moody Accelerator program, and that's where I learned a lot more about, you know, what growth hacking actually is, and I learned Mm. and started attending a lot of growth talks and sort of honed in on those growth skills.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of conjecture about what growth marketing or growth hacking is. What's your definition of first growth marketing and how does it differ to growth hacking?
1: Well, for me, I think the semantics between growth marketing and growth hacking, for me, I don't think there's a massive difference. I think Mm. when it comes to growth, it's more about the way you think and the way you approach how you grow your business or your product and how you set up your teams and structure your you know, your hypothesis and validation process. I think it's more about that rather than, you know, what do you call it and what sort of tactics you implement. Mm. So from a tactics point of view, you know, you can't really copy and paste things from product to product just because there's different growth strategies for different business models. So I think for me what growth really is, it's much more holistic view of looking at a business than what traditional marketing is. So, you know, traditional marketing would be more about looking at things like you know, number of downloads, number of Mm. views, number of signups, which if you were to graph it, it would just be a linear increasing graph, right? Whereas growth is more about, you know, the growth rates, the overall business growth rate. And then that growth rate can be influenced by each of those metrics that you're looking at for marketing. But ultimately, it's about, you know, where am I losing the most customers in my current growth marketing funnel? So whether is it in downloads or is it in, you know, engaged users? And then how do I patch up those holes so that you know, this funnel looks more like a tunnel.
0: Been to a couple of your growth marketing talks before and they're fantastic. And one of the metrics, I guess, methodologies that you talk about, pirate metrics. Yep. Can you tell us what pirate metrics are?
1: Yeah, so for those of you who don't know what pirate <laughs> metrics are, um, the reason it's called pirate metrics is because the first letter of each part of the funnel spells out R. Right. So it's like A-A-A something, R. R. Yeah, R. <laughs> So it starts off with awareness, which is more around brand familiarity. So it's like, where have you first heard about us? Um, the second stage of the funnel is acquisition, which is um, the first expression of interest in your product. So that could be a mailing list sign up. Right. Um, it could be you know someone putting down their email saying, I'm interested in your product, but hasn't actually gone onto the platform. So that could be an acquisition metric. The third step is called activation, and this is the most important step. So any 25% increase in your activation rate will convert into a 48% increase in your annual recurring revenue. Wow. So most people sort of familiarize themselves with, you know, active everything about, you know, getting more users and acquiring more users or like getting people to refer more users when actually it's more important that you activate these users and make them, mm. you know, the sort of customer that you actually want to see using your product. Um so the activation metric is the most important one. And I sort of call this the aha moment. Right. So this is the moment when your customer experiences the core benefit of your product for the first time. So, you know, for some like real case examples, I think, for example, Twitter, they during the onboarding process, you might notice that they really push you to follow at least 28 people mm-hmm. during your sign-up process. And that's because 28 follows is their activation metric. Right. So they spend the whole onboarding process to try to push you to follow 28 people, and once you do, it creates like an instant timeline for you on Twitter. So the moment you log in, then you already have a lot of content to see, and you would actually have to go out of your way to, you know, to not follow 28 people because you have to uncheck, you know, your mm. those suggested boxes during the onboarding process. So that's the activation metric. Then it sort of goes into retention so once you've activated your user how do you make sure that they stay a user so this really differs between different business models so for example if you're Facebook your retention metric might be daily active users because you'd expect people to use your product daily whereas if you're an e-commerce store you might not expect people to purchase from you daily it might be something like return uh, recurring purchases um, every I don't know month or three months depending on what your product is So your retention metric really differs as well depending on what sort of business model you fall under. Um, The other two is you've got revenue, so that's your paying users. I think that's pretty straightforward. Revenue is just the money that is brought in. And then the last one's about referrals. So
0: um, Mm.
1: how are people, how are, you know, activated or retained users currently referring you to friends and what's that particular referral metric that you're getting? So... You know, first of all, how many people are referring you? On average, how many people are they referring to your product? And then of those people, you know, how many actually activate as users? So I think generally forms like the pirate metrics funnel. Mm. And you'll notice that at each stage of the funnel, there will be a lot of drop-offs. And I know I've described it, like it sounds very linear, but then like the whole process itself is quite cyclical. So, you know, there'll be like people that churn from the activation metric and people churn from the retention metric. And then you'll have to figure out what, like, you know, creative ways and how you can pick those people back up.
0: Interesting. So you touched on activation. What was that statistic on activation?
1: So activation was a twenty-five percent increase in your activation metric will lead to a forty-eight percent increase in your annual recurring revenue. Wow. This is just what works out mathematically. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. And, I mean, for small, medium, and early stage businesses listening, what sort of tips can you give them around improving their activation process?
1: So I think the first thing is actually just figuring out what the core value of your product is. So the best way to sort of find this activation point is, you know, you look at your retained users or, you know, for people who are early in the business, just think about how you want your user to behave on your platform and then figure that out. And then what's that one behavior that they have to do in order for them to realize that particular value and stay as a customer? So I think for a lot of people, they worry a lot about monetization. They're like, oh, what if people game my product? What if people, Mm. you know, from the freemium, they've already used up all the, you know, good features of my product and then I can't monetize them after that. But I think at the beginning, you don't even know if you have product market fit yet. So at the beginning, Mm. you just really want to see if people love your product. And if they do love your product, there's always ways you can monetize. So I think it's about, you know, being able to recognize the behaviors that people take for that, lead them to really enjoying what your product is and then willing to sort of upsell themselves later on. I think your activation metric is just something that you need to figure out based on what the core value of your product is. So, And then once you've figured out what that is, then everything you build for your onboarding process should lead to your activation metric. Mm. So, for example, if you take a look at MailChimp, you don't really experience the core value of MailChimp until you've you know, really signed up and created your first campaign. So you don't actually know what's so good about MailChimp until you've sent your first email. So if you go through MailChimp's onboarding process, you'll notice that from sign up all the way to activation, which is, you know, sending out that first email, they force you through this onboarding process, which says you have to complete steps one to five, which includes, you know, setting up your template, setting up your email details, adding your contacts and so forth before you can progress onto anything else on the platform. So you'll notice that most of what MailChimp does is like just push you towards that activation metric, which is creating your first email. And then once you've done that, then you can, you know, more freely access the other features.
0: Mm. So, I mean, we've talked a bit about onboarding as well. Obviously a massive area that small, medium business struggle with. What are the first steps that they can take to start to develop out their onboarding process and activate more users?
1: I think the best way to do onboarding is, well, first, I think you need the customer personas. So you need to figure out who exactly you're building out your onboarding process for because people will react differently based on, you know, what sort of product it is and um, what sort of journey you're trying to take them through. So, for example, you know, the way you would build an onboarding process for a B2C company versus a B2B company is very different. You would want to find out very different data. You'd, for example, instead of maybe sign up via Facebook, you'd do sign up via Google or, you know, you have a requirement that you must use your work email So I think onboarding, first of all, you just really need to figure out who your customer persona is. Then once you've figured out who that is, then you really need to empathize with them and see, you know, what sort of information are they willing to provide, but then not so much that it creates friction for them to get to the core value of your product. Because, you know, again, what you're really trying to do is get them to experience, you know, the value of your product as soon as possible so that they can make the decision to purchase it or to continue using it like quite easily. So you want to minimize you know, the amount of friction they have to go through to make that decision. So when you're building your onboarding process, once you've sort of figured out customer persona and once you've sort of understand what they're trying to achieve with your product, then I think what you can do after that is you can just do like a blueprint of what you think that onboarding process is, but then I would always cross-reference competitors. Mm. So see how competitors are doing it and what other good parts that they're using that you can also incorporate in your own. So things like, for example, progress bars are great. So it gives people an expectation on, you know, how long they have until they can go into your product. And it's also a bit of like psychological gamification with progress bars. So people enjoy, you know, finishing things off once they've invested a certain amount of time. Yeah. Other things that we typically do is we just screenshot like competitor onboarding, um, Mm -hmm. put them all in like a folder and then just like cross-reference to see which makes more sense. So I think, you know, for B2B, Productivity tools, for example, I think like Asana has -hmm. a really good onboarding process. So they've got one that, you know, really forces you to use your work email because they know exactly what sort of customer persona they want, which is, you know, we only want businesses and we only want businesses that are serious about using this productivity tool so they only let you sign up with work email. If you sign up with an email that ends in at Mm gmail.com, you'll go through another page which says, please verify your email and then a pop-up will come up and say, "Mm, this seems like a personal email. Please enter a work email. Wow. So, yeah, if you go through a lot of different customer journeys like that, you'll realize what works and what doesn't work.
0: Mm. So I mean, it's an important point that you mentioned looking at competitors, and the quote that always comes to mind for me is the Sun Tzu quote, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need need not fear the result of 100 battles. And I mean, it's something that people really don't put enough emphasis on is, you know, taking a deep dive on their competitors. And I know a lot of businesses and startups don't put enough emphasis on this because, I mean, you can find out what's working in the market straight away. You know, these guys have been testing different channels, spending a lot of money so you can leverage that data. Can you talk us through a time at maybe your first startup that you worked with, uh, Spaceship, and how you guys researched competitors and how that formed some of your thinking for your marketing strategy?
1: Yeah, so with Spaceship, I think something a little bit cheeky that we did very in the early days was we used this tool called SEMrush. Right. Um, there are lots of different, you know, tools that do pretty much the same thing as SEMrush, including, you know, Ahrefs and so forth. But basically we, what we did was we used SEMrush to sort of view the analytics of how our competitors were doing their AdWord campaigns and what sort of words they were ranking for right. in terms of SEO as well. So we realised one of our competitors – You know, 70% of their site traffic was coming from one very specific AdWords campaign. Mm -hmm. um, They were bidding a pretty cheap price for it. So we thought it would be funny to, you know, bid a little bit higher on those AdWords. So then we would rank first for that particular AdWord and then take most of their traffic. It worked quite well, actually. So we did get a lot of their traffic, but then we also got an angry email from their CEO. (laughs) So we stopped that campaign, uh, you know, out of goodwill. But yeah, like a lot of things like that, I think. It's just like things that you find once you actually start doing your research on competitors. I genuinely believe that the best sort of strategies, like, begin with intuition. So they start with genuinely understanding your industry, mm. um, your customer persona, um, how channels mix with specific audiences and just having a general, you know, feel for where your product sits in comparison to the rest of the market. And then after that, I think you can do a lot of data-related things. So I think after that then you can start testing hypothesis in a much more, you know, data-driven way than, you know, previously when you're generating um, that hypothesis. But I think it has to be a mix of both, you know, intuition and data in order to get that. And I think um, the best way to sort of feed your intuition and also like in a slightly data-driven way is actually just to do your research and like to look at tools like SEMrush to see what competitors are ranking for, to see, you know, what they're doing well, what they're not doing well, and then see how your business model fits somewhere in between there. Mm. So you can't always replicate your competitor strategies because maybe they have a different business model to you. For example, Canva is a freemium model. Photoshop is like, you know, paid subscription model. Yep. The way that they would market their product is just different because, mm. you know, Adobe would want you to pay you know, upfront, whereas Canva just wants you to sign up. So I think, you know, when it comes to developing a strategy, you take into consideration your competitors, but you don't let that drive your entire strategy.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So I wanted to touch a bit more on Spaceship. So you were employee number three at Spaceship. So obviously one of the hottest startups in the last three, four years in Australia. I guess we have you to thank all the millennials (laughs) who have seen Spaceship, you know, absolutely everywhere. I mean, you did a fantastic job of penetrating the market in the early days. Can you tell me the story of, I mean, obviously, employee number three, super early, you were tasked with, you know, getting promotion, building out the marketing strategy, the pre-launch strategy. Can you tell us the story of how that all came together?
1: yeah so, um, me beginning at spaceship actually was an interesting story as well. Right. So I was picked up at my first growth talk ever, wow. so I actually tried to get really tried really desperately to get out of that growth talk. I was not comfortable oh. with public speaking about you know growth at that time. Mm. I felt like i had I'd only just started my growth career and I wasn't you know anything good or anything, so I actually tried to get out of that growth talk. I wow. told the organizer. I was like, sorry, you know, I'm going overseas that week. I probably won't be able to make it. And he was like, oh, that's great. Like, I'll just move the date to suit you. So I literally had no choice. had no more excuse after that. I had to do it. So I went and did it. And then the CEO of Spaceship actually picked me up from that particular event. And he said, let's grab a coffee. And I spent the rest of that interview with him um, just trying to convince him that I wasn't that good. (laughs) It was my first go talk ever. You know, I'm not as good as you think I am sort of thing. And and then for some reason, he was like more interested. He's like, I think I enjoy the fact that you're starting from blank slate. Wow. And he's like, you know, do you think you can get me to $100 million in funds under management by March 31st, which was around four to five months after that meeting? Wow. I was like, oh, to be honest, probably not. I was like, but I'll try my best. I think maybe because I was given that really difficult task, I, you know, I was like, you know, what would happen if I just, you know, put everything into this, didn't get distracted, and then just did this thing, one thing for the next couple of months, and see if I can achieve it. Mm. Right? I was like, even if I don't make the hundred mil, I'm pretty sure, you know, I'll try my best and get somewhere close. Yeah. Um. So I ended up, you know, I had a banking internship the next day that I was meant to start with. Yeah with a big bank and I called them up and I said, sorry, I'm not coming in tomorrow. I've got something new. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So they'd already, you know, organized a, like a laptop and a phone for me. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, I'm not coming in. I also deferred uni as well, which oh, so I realized- so still in
0: uni at the time?
1: Yeah, I was still in uni at the time. So wow. I just made the decision to defer. I didn't tell my mum yet. <laughs> After I told my mum, I got, got into big trouble, but yeah, it eventually paid off. And now my mum doesn't tell me to do anything anymore. So it's all good. <laughs> but that's how like my career at Spaceship basically started. So I actually spent my first week at Spaceship just calling up around 200 people going through, you know, why did you sign up to Spaceship? What are your goals with superannuation? What do you mm-hmm. care about when it comes to superannuation? So is the transparency? Is your returns? You know, is it your investment philosophy? What exactly is it? Um, what do you currently not like about your super fund? And then how would you describe Spaceship to a friend or a colleague? Right. And what I basically ended up doing was I... So, I called everyone up manually. So, I was on the phone with them for around 10 minutes each. And then I would type up their exact response on a Google form. Right. And then it would translate into a Google sheet. And then I would just cluster them up based on particular themes. So, if they had said transparency and high returns, for example, I'd cluster them up as transparency, high return. And then I would quantitatively sort of see what percentage of people fit into each category. And that was how I built my first p- custom persona for Spaceship. Wow. So it was like, you know, 25 to 35-year-old millennials, you know, worked for technology, you know, was really interested in investing in technology because they worked in technology and understood it and believed that, you know, the future would not be in BHP and the big four banks. It would be mm. in, you know, your Google, your Amazon, Facebooks, and so forth. And so we ended up building out that persona. And once I had that persona, then it was very easy to sort of, Think about, you know, what, given this persona, what helps them drive particular psychological decisions when it comes to, you know, investing superannuation, for example. And I think that in the early days, when you have a superannuation product, which is very high end is in a space that's crowded with people who've been there for decades. It's very difficult for you to convince someone to try something new, right? Because you're putting Mm -hmm. your retirement savings, which, and if you have, say, $50,000 in superannuation, fees would be around like $800 per year. So you wouldn't really make that decision to, you know, give a fund manager $800 a year just, you know, from a Facebook ad or from anything like that. So I think a lot of it had to come from, you know, what are those, you know, irrational psychological triggers that you can use um in order to make that decision a lot easier than it is. So what you want to avoid is you want to avoid them doing, you know, very specific price checks. So, you know, them doing them looking at a different superannuation funds website, you know, going through the PDS comparing it to your PDS, mm. and even if, you know, your product is better than theirs, there's just so much, you know, mental deliberation and they have to go through so much effort to do that that they'd probably end up procrastinating and not, you know, rolling over anyway. So I think that was my main goal when I thought about you know how do I make people make the decision to roll over to Spaceship, which is a completely new fund, is a startup mm. um, sort of thing, and we didn't even have a technical platform at that time. Wow! So the first thing I thought was okay, well, I think people make decisions based on who they look up to, right. and I think this is particularly true when you look at e-commerce stores and how, for example, Showpoe's doing their marketing. A lot of the people. They use uh, like social media influencers, and they you know just wear the clothes, and then a lot of girls would buy those clothes because they're like, oh, I want to be seen like in a similar light to that social media influencer. Yep. So that's very similar for most people as well. So in the tech industry, I think a lot of people look up to people like you know Jane Liu, CEO of Shopeo, or Mike Cannon Brooks, the CEO of Atlassian. Mm. And so we actually featured a lot of these influencers on our ads. So we were like. You know, your your super's invested like you're retiring in five years, but, y- you know, you've still got 40 years until you're retiring. Yeah. Like, do you know what you're invested in now? Do you know where your super is? Do you know who's managing it? And that sort of ads were the ones that we ran with My Cannon Brooks and Jane Liu, and they performed extremely well. Right. So we'd get an email for around like $3 or so. So that was a really good campaign that we ran. Well, obviously, like I mentioned before, people don't usually make decisions from one Facebook ad, especially for financial services. Mm. So then I was like, okay, well, what's a second barrier? Like, what's a second little nudge that people need um, in order to make this decision? I was like, okay, well, usually when you see an ad on Facebook or you see an influencer do something, you'd ask a friend, hey, what do you think about Spaceship? Or like, have you heard of Spaceship? What do you think? So we ran this waitlist program, which is basically something that we had modelled off Robin Hood's one. Okay. So I think really good growth strategies are ones that they're, they're not really anything new. They're just mm. things that have been working for, like, the past couple of decades, but it's just been moved into, like, a digital format. Yeah. So, for example, referral campaigns have been, you know, operating since a long time ago. So, you know, early days people would do chain mail via, like, putting a piece of paper in, like, people's letterboxes and then getting them to pass it along. Um, Mm. then when we entered like MSN era, if anyone remembers this, (laughs) you'd get like, you know, forward this message onto seven friends or you'll be ugly for the rest (laughs) of your life sort of thing. And then like, it's actually just been like sort of redone into this new digital format, which is Mm. now we've got, you know, referral program. So Uber's got their, you know, $10 referral program and then Robinhood's got their wait list. And we sort of just did the same wait list as Robinhood, except we did it in a group format, but just because we felt you know, saying someone was like 15,000th in line wasn't particularly motivating. No. So we just did like a grouped referral program where if you put in your email, you're group 36. Right. If you completed the form with all your personal details and verified your number, you'd get bumped up 10 groups to group 26. Okay. And then for every person you referred after that, you'd get bumped up another five groups. So if you referred five people, you'd get into group one. Right. uh, Which meant you get early access to Spaceship once we launched. So that was the general like psychology and gamification behind that referral yeah. program, and that worked really well for us, especially in conjunction with the Facebook ads because the Facebook ads were bringing in a lot of momentum and a lot of traffic into the website, and then mm. the website would convert them into waitlisters. So we had a really good conversion rate for that particular form as well just because we gamified it. Um, and then on the final thing, I think a lot of people still trust data a lot, so we did a lot mm. of PR with like AFR and stuff like that. But yeah, I think it was like the amalgamation of like this whole campaign that yeah. sort of made people end up rolling over to Spaceship. So in the end, we ended up with 40,000 waitlisters, which was wow. actually 60,000 short of what I was meant to get. So, oh, really? so Paul thought that, so the CEO of Spaceship thought that, you know, 100,000 signups was what we needed to get to $100 million in funds under management. Right. When really we still achieved that within like 40,000. So they converted to $100 million in funds and management in early April. So I was a couple of days late (laughs) from the, you know, 31st of March goal, but we got there in the end. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Amazing story as well. So, I mean, you mentioned starting from scratch and there's a lot of business owners that don't have any idea about marketing. They're starting from scratch. What could you recommend to those guys and what sort of tools helped you in the early days and what tools do you still use to this day?
1: I think like the most important thing is like don't try to scale when you're not at scale. So if you're not at a size where you have to automate most of your marketing processes, you don't actually have to. Yeah. So you can just, you know, as quickly as possible, try to test specific channels, see what works, what, you know, marketing messaging works. And then once you've figured out that, then you can start investing more heavily in those particular channels. As for tools, I think... At the beginning, there's nothing more important than data analytics tools. So I think it's really important that you track everything. Just mm-hmm. otherwise, it's really difficult to learn from, you know, what you're currently experimenting with. Yeah. So if you're not tracking things, then you don't know f- how your experiment's going. So you don't know if it w- went well or if it went poorly. You don't know what was the cause. Like, so, you know, you might have a spike in signups. You don't know where they came from if you weren't tracking it properly. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to, you know, invest in those data analytics tools. I think the stack that I always start off with is Segments. So Segments, the data warehouse. So what they do is they basically, you know, allow for inputs and outputs. So it's like a read-only tool, but then it sort of Sits at the center of all your other marketing tools and as well as your internal database. Okay. So it you, you can basically push out particular events. So, for example, um, you might want to connect it with an email tool like Autopilot. So, when Autopilot sends an email, it can send a sec- an event to Segment, and then that event to Segment can maybe go link to Mixpanel um, right. to build like a funnel or something like that for visualization purposes. Mm. So, Segment's really good for that, is like creating like a central location for all your data needs. So yeah, usually use start off with segment and then I always get data visualization tools like Mixpanel. So Mixpanel basically helps you visualize a lot of your data from the data warehouse that you're currently using. So you can, you know, draw out your parametrics funnel, for example. So you mm-hmm. can see how the customers are going from step one, step two, step three, step four, and then what are the drop-off rates? And then you would know then, okay, well, if I know that my conversion rate is really low and these are the four steps that it, people have to take to get to that particular conversion point, then I know which step is actually making, you know, most people drop off and not mm. convert. And then that's the one that I need to patch up. So, for example, for Spaceship, you know, a lot of people dropped off during the stage where we asked for their TFN, which is their tax file number, which is completely understandable. Like I still don't know my tax file <laughs> number. It's like not handy at all. Yeah. So in the end we ended up, putting like a little information bubble saying, hey, you can find your tax file number by calling the ATO
0: right.
1: or checking your latest payslip. And that worked really well to increase conversion for that particular page. And so we could convert more people for rollovers, for example. So another tool that is really useful is I really like Autopilot. So that's an email marketing tool.
0: Australian-based as well? Yeah,
1: they're Australian-based. So it's just a really great customer experience when you're building mm. out email journeys So I would really recommend autopilot. But yeah, I think those are like the main tools that you should probably start off with just to make sure that you're tracking everything before you're doing any sort of testing, because otherwise Mm. there's no point to doing testing if you don't know how it's actually going.
0: Yeah. So in terms of learning how to learn, so you came over from the accounting background, you jumped straight in, deferred uni. I mean, what kind of resources did you use to learn the art of growth marketing? I mean, are you a big reader, videos, courses? What was your sort of learning stack?
1: Yeah, When I started off, I was really keen. I was like the biggest keen bean. <laughs> I attended probably like a dozen or two growth talks that year. Right. So I just sat in on most like growth hackers, Australia talks. And it was just like all these like free talks mm. that I just sat in. I used to you know, write word for word what every speaker was saying. Oh, wow. and I'd write it in my notebook, and then oh. I'd like go home and Google it later if I didn't know what they were talking about. A lot of them were quite questionable in terms of content. Right. but then you also got like really good ones like here and there, like when I learned my pirate metrics, for example. Mm. So I think in the end, like the reason I do a lot of talks is because I really wanted to just sort of consolidate a lot of what I had learned from other people as well as my own experiences and then only pass through the good parts and not the mm. you know, bad parts because you you tend to get a lot of like agency people who also like just say things to promote their own work yeah. that doesn't necessarily help start but I think what I ended up taking away was the good parts after I'd like done a lot of research on Google and things like that. I think another good person to learn from is like Brian Balfour who was the VP of Marketing at HubSpot. So he's got a lot online course that's on his website. And then he also runs a program called Reforge, which you can apply for if you've been in growth for three years. So Reforge is more like I think it's more taking people from a foundational level to like a more advanced level. So if you've been doing marketing for three years, you might want to consider doing the Reforge course. The only bad thing about it is that it works on, I think, Silicon Valley time. Right. So some of your meetings might be like 2 a.m. or something like that. Yeah. So that's the only bad thing. But I think that that course is really good as well. Yeah, so mostly I've just been going to talks and learning that way. I did read a lot, but I don't think it was learnt from books. Mm. It was just more like articles here and there to sort of understand. Right. Any
0: particular books that you could recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah, so the really like cliche book recommendations like The Lean Startup Mm. and there's another one called Traction. Traction. So those are the two books that most people recommend and I I also recommend them, but then I actually find – general behavioural economics books really useful for growth. So I think they really sort of teach you what are the sort of thought processes people go through before they make particular purchase decisions Mm. Um, and then also what are those like psychological ticks that you can use to help people make decisions a lot quicker and like it's irrational but ideally, you know, you have a good product and they're making that irrational decision for a good reason. So Mm. things like, for example, when you're doing pricing, you might want to have a tiered system just so you know, they're not trying to compare your product to other products even though you have different features. So you might want to do, you know, maybe you have a free tier, a standard tier and a premium tier. Maybe your ideal state is you want them to purchase a premium tier. So you make the premium and standard tiers priced quite similarly, but then the premium one has a lot more features and a lot better features and things like that. So then when people are doing that mental calculation in their head, they're like, oh, well, standard is worth this much mm. and it's only such a small increase to get premium for all this extra features so maybe i'm gonna go with premium mm-hmm. so it's like these psychological ticks, and the book that i read to learn about that was called predictably irrational okay. by dan ariel i think his name was right so that was like really good book that i read and i thought it was like super interesting and the author's background is super interesting as well so he i think when he was a child he burnt like three quarters of his body or something so wow. he you know, found it really difficult to go out, especially when he was under so much pain. So he spent a lot of time observing people and that's where he started learning all these psychological, you know, tics that make people make specific decisions. And then he ended up becoming a behavioural economist because of that. Wow. So would highly recommend that book.
0: Yeah, I yeah. know we'll put all the books and all the resources Anna's mentioned in the show notes that you guys can find at medici.com forward slash podcast. So, Anna, thanks so much for all the value you've given the audience so far. I mean, so many notes and books that I'm going to check out personally as well. A couple more questions before we wrap up. So, obviously, it's important to have business mentors in your life, especially around marketing. And I know you do a lot of advising and you're giving back to the growth community as well. Can you tell us a story of the time that a mentor has helped you in your business life and who are your mentors?
1: Yeah, so I've had a couple of mentors. Like, so the CEO, I always work for companies where I think the CEO is a genuine mentor to me. So when I started off as Spaceship, the CEO of Spaceship, he, I think, he provided a lot of guidance towards, you know, how do you work in a way that, you know, can set other people up for success as well. So it's not just about you and your role, but like, how do you make sure that you work well with others as well? So he taught me, you know, how do you do? think in a very strategic growth mindset? So he was really good at that. So he, he's probably one of the best salesperson I know. Right. So he um, was really good at, you know, painting that narrative for Spaceship and then getting, you know, lots of investors to invest in Spaceship as well. So I learned a lot from him strategically as well as in terms of, you know, how do I do reporting properly so that you can help the business grow as well. And so everyone's got a good understanding of where growth is at in relativity to the objectives of the business, my current CEO Sam Zhang, uh, CEO of Curious Thing, he's also sort of in that mentorship capacity where he's mentoring me to be like become a leader of growth, how to you know lead teams, how to awesome. communicate openly, and things like that. So I think for me, like those soft skills are really important as well. So I'd only ever work for people who I feel like can genuinely teach me those type of soft skills, like how do you influence people, and how do you also communicate in an effective manner so that you help other people achieve what they want to achieve as well. And then from like a more specific growth perspective, I've also got mentors like Andre, who's the head of product and head of growth at Airtasker, previously Canva. So I was very lucky that the CEO of Spaceship connected me up with him very early on in my career. So I think he taught me a lot of the frameworks really well. And every time I talk to him, you know, he has a really new perspective that he can offer me. I think like that's the best part, which is, You know, I actually love being told I'm wrong. So I Mm. love it when people are like, okay, actually you could have thought about it from this perspective. Mm. And then after that conversation, after most conversations with Andre, actually I feel like, I'm like, oh, I feel like an (laughs) idiot, but I'm like such a happy (laughs) idiot because now I know exactly like what I want to do next. So Mm. I was very lucky to have Andre as my mentor and he's still my mentor to this day um, with uh, Curious Thing as well. So he's, you know, joined us as an advisor as well. So I think I was like very lucky to have him, you know, sort of, guide me through my growth journey.
0: Yeah, he's amazing. Tell us a bit more about Curious Thing.
1: Yeah, so Curious Thing is actually extremely deep tech product. So it's a B2B AI company. So what it's developing is a conversational AI that knows how to ask questions. So currently in the market, you'll notice that, you know, your series, your Cortanas and so forth, they all sort of reactive in terms of how they do it. So you give them a command and then they answer it for you, but they're unable to sort of understand the context of where that came from. So, for example, if you're like, you know, hey, how's the weather today? Siri might say, oh, it's 35 degrees. But then if you ask, you know, should I wear a jacket? Siri doesn't have context for that anymore. Right. So it's a single-turn conversation. Mm. Whereas what a curious thing is building is a questioning service that is capable of multi-turn conversations. Okay. So if you say something like, hey, Siri or perhaps maybe in this case, it's like a HR interviewer, for example. So maybe it's replacing the interview function. So, you know, it might say, you know, what sort of programming languages do you use? And then you might say, oh, you know, I've been programming in Python for the past five years. The AI would then know to ask, oh, oh, okay. So, you know, have you tried like Flask, for example? Mm. So it understands the context of what you just said and then it's able to generate follow-up questions. And the idea of it is to... Is able to derive new knowledge from people. Okay. So it's more about, you know, sourcing knowledge from humans rather than, you know, answering questions for humans. And I think that's like the main differentiating factor from, you know, Curious Thing and other types of AI companies in the market. So the first case study that Curious Thing is going through is the HR interviewer. So we've worked with like a lot of big companies like Quantium AWS, CSIRO and things like that to help them with like high volume recruitment Mm -hmm. through this specific interviewing tool.
0: Amazing. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So once again, Anna, thank you for dropping so much valuable content to no the worries. audience today. We have a couple of abstract questions yeah. that we like to end with. Yeah. So are you ready?
1: Yeah, yeah. i excited.
0: <laughs> so the first one is, if you could have a billboard that all business owners could see, could have text, visuals, whatever you want on it, where would you put it and what would it say?
1: If I had a billboard that I could put anywhere, I'd probably put – either one in like a highly populated area so your typical like Times square answer or i would put it on the moon i think i think the moon would be a nice place to put it (laughs) i think the moon just because it's a more unique sort of location it Mm. generates hype so the virality is sort of there i think with like answers like Times square Mm. um you know it's so expected that you would see an advertisement there people expect to see it and then people see it and forget whereas if you put something on the moon like how often mm. has that been done? Not that often. No. I think that would be more like a long-term sort of impression that you could make mm. and that could get a lot of media interest as well. Um, what would I put on a billboard? <laughs> I'm not sure. It'd probably be, I don't know, it'd be like I'll take money from someone else who <laughs> want, has something specific that they want on the billboard and I'll mm. put it up there for them. I mean, I mean, you, no you idea. could potentially
0: leave it blank. That might get, uh, you know, more sort of shares. People can come up with their own meaning.
1: Yeah, I think that would be like a nice like philosophical way to do. But then it's like I don't know what sort of value I can generate from (laughs) that particular thing. So, Mm. you know, if I ever do put a billboard up on the moon, my DMs are open for any (laughs) advertisements that anyone wants to put on there. I have no idea what I would put on that billboard. Well, I'll
0: tell you, it is a fantastic segue to the next question and it's also the 50-year anniversary of the moon landing this week as well. Oh, yeah, nice. A question that we like to ask all of our guests. So are are you ready for launch, Anna?
1: Yes, yes.
0: So you're on the first flight to Mars with Elon Musk and the first settlers aboard the SpaceX Starship rocket. What business do you start when you land on Mars and how do you market it to the new Martians?
1: So I think if we were to avoid like the obvious answers, which are, you know, getting monopolies over resources that everyone needs like water and housing and things like that, I would probably open the first bank there. Okay. Um, I think... The best way to make money is to help other people make money. Mm. And I think I was thinking about this question, you know, with so many business opportunities that you can capitalise, the best way to do it is just to give people the capital in order for them to achieve those particular dreams that they also might have in regards to what sort of businesses they want to open. Yeah. So the first thing I'd open is probably like a bank nice. um, give or like a investment firm or something like that, which basically allows people to borrow or you know, give up some of the equity in order to build out their first businesses, which might be, you know, that monopoly of water or mm. that monopoly of food or the next Amazon or so forth. But at least you can start off with something like that so that they get access to capital. And mm. then it's something that's also, I think, like more of a passive thing. So once you've set it up, then it sort of operates on its own and also don't think it needs much marketing. Um, mm. So if you're the first bank there, you probably don't need to market too much. It's just where people go for capital. Yeah. I think that would be interesting. Which also opens, I guess, the can of worms to like, you know, what sort of currency is on Mars. Mm. So, potentially, you could also, you know, branch out your banking license um, (laughs) if there is one to, you know, opening it up to, you know, starting up a new Mars currency or some things like that. I think that could be interesting as well.
0: So, some kind of decentralized currency?
1: Yeah, it could be. I'm I'm hesitant to say cryptocurrency, (laughs) but, you know, like I'd definitely say I'd like start a fintech and bank um, to begin with. And I think a lot of the patents in the world currently are like quite regional. So yeah. once you, you know, move to Mars, you can probably replicate a lot of the patents that exist on Earth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the business opportunities are endless there. Yeah. So, you know, I'd probably offer that nudge people towards the decision of, you know, maybe you want to replicate some of those patents and Mm. then you can borrow money from my bank to do so, (laughs) sort of thing. But yeah, I'd probably just, yeah, I don't think banks and things need much marketing. So luckily we already know that there's a product market fit. Yes. So all you sort of need to do is just make people aware of it, which can be done through like traditional marketing.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure you'd be able to build an awesome pre-launch waiting list as well. Yeah.
1: Like pun not intended, but yeah.
0: (laughs) And then you've got um, intergalactic possibilities with your billboard on the moon as well
1: yeah we can cross
0: sell to different planets
1: yeah on the way to mars they might pass the moon (laughs) i don't know if that's actually astronomically correct (laughs) i don't know if you do pass the moon to get to mars but yeah could potentially fly past that billboard where i'd advertise my own bank yeah there
0: you go so anna again thank you so much for coming on today is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up and how can people get in touch
1: so people can get in touch via my Twitter or LinkedIn. So I think my LinkedIn handle is Anna AnnaQCheng and that's the same for my Twitter handle as well. So you can get in touch via those two social media channels. Otherwise, I don't really have much to add, but thanks so much for having me. I think the questions are really interesting.
0: No, you're welcome. Thank you for providing so much value. All of Anna's resources and notes will be in our show notes that you can find at com forward slash podcast. And once again, thanks, Anna. It's been fun. Thanks. From MediG, this is the Forward Thinking Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable tips from today's episode. If you like what you heard, you can help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. If you know a business owner who needs help with their marketing, and I mean, don't we all know one of those guys, tell them to check us out. Never miss another episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more about metagy and get a listener exclusive three month free trial, visit us at metagy.com forward slash podcast. You can also view all of the resources and tools mentioned in this episode at metagy.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, why not listen to some other episodes? and join the world's leading community of forward-thinking marketers. I'm Brendan Hill, your first business connection, and I'll catch you next week for another award-winning episode of the Forward Thinking Podcast.